If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to open with me to the Gospel of Jesus as recorded by Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 17, and we will begin in verse 1. Luke chapter 17 and verse 1. And we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And today I want to talk a little bit about sin and forgiveness. Sin and forgiveness. Now, Jesus' teaching here is uh, very straightforward. You know, sometimes Jesus will give a teaching and, and you really have to study on it because sometimes maybe he uses uh, figures of speech that we're not familiar with or something like that. But, uh, but this is pretty straightforward. And so I, it doesn't require a lot of intro and, uh, or setup. So I just want to jump into our text and I just want us to go through it piece by piece and, and go nice and slow and consider what he says about sin and forgiveness. So if you found Luke 17 and are able... I'd like you to stand with me in honor of God's word, and we will read down to verse 10. Now, Luke chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, And he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea, than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? And properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave, because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the, all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. Thank you, you may be seated. <clears throat> now this text breaks down into four pieces, and, and the first one that I want you to see, the first piece, or the first thing I want you to see, is stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks. You'll see that Jesus says that stumbling blocks, uh, verse 1, stumbling blocks are inevitable. Now, Jesus, it says here, is talking to the disciples. Now, if, if you remember what we've been looking at in, in uh, Luke chapter 16, he's been talking to uh, the Pharisees, especially at the end of chapter 16. He told the parable or the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Whether it's a parable or not, we're not for sure. But he told the, the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and he told it to these Pharisees who loved money, and, uh, and, and they thought it was foolish, the things that Jesus was saying about how we need to make friends for ourselves with, with wealth and things like that, and, and in, essentially investing in eternity. And so Jesus has turned his attention in chapter 17 back to his disciples. And so he's, he, he tells them that it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. Now, what is a stumbling block? Your Bible may render that word as offenses. It is inevitable that offenses come. What is, what is an offense in this case? What is a stumbling block? Well, the Greek word is scandalize. It's the word that we get our English word scandal or scandalize from, and it means to, to cause somebody to trip or to fall. In other words, it's, it's, in this context, it's speaking about a temptation. It's a temptation to fall or to get tripped up and to fall into sin. Now, we know what a stumbling block is because um, if you've ever watched a movie or a TV show where somebody's running through the woods, they're trying to escape something real bad, they always find the stumbling blocks. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, they'll be running at top speed every time they fall flat on their face. 
And it's, it, 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 it's, it, it, it just always happens. If you've ever lived in a house or been in a house with uh, children, especially young children, and you've tried to walk through the house when it's dark, you found stumbling blocks, haven't you? I mean, maybe it's a Lego. Maybe it's that, you know, the shoe. I think the shoes may be nocturnal because they can never be found when it's time to leave during the day, but they always come out at night. They'll be out in the middle of the hall, out in the middle of the living room. There'll be toys, and you can be trying to go through quiet as a mouse, and you will inevitably, you will hit that stumbling block, and, and you'll trip. You'll fall, and that is a picture of what Jesus is talking about. Of course, he's not talking about shoes that magically appear in, in the living room. He's talking about spiritual realities. But what he's saying is, in this life, we're all going to have times, we're all going to have issues that come up that tempt us to sin. You will come across things that will trip you up in this life. I mean, in case you haven't noticed, it's a rough world out there. I mean, you can't walk down the street, you can't sit in the class, you can't turn on the radio, you can't browse the internet, you can't watch TV or movies or, or, or really do much of anything without being exposed to something that's going to tempt you in some way. It's going to tempt you to think about things that you shouldn't be thinking about, to act in a way that you shouldn't be acting, to have a bad attitude, to say things you shouldn't be talking about. Those temptations are going to come. They're inevitable in this life. But Jesus says in, in, uh, in, in, in chapter 17, verse 2, just because they're common doesn't mean they're not serious. Yes, they are common. They're inevitable, verse 1. But then he pronounces woe on them, uh, on him to whom or through whom they come. Now, woe is not something that we say a whole lot these days. And when he says woe, he's not talking about putting the brakes on a horse. That, that's a different kind of woe. Woe here is a, pro- a pronouncement of judgment. It's a pronouncement of, of ruin. And probably the most, the, the most familiar time that we read in the Bible, the most familiar text where this, this idea or this word is used is Isaiah 6. You remember in Isaiah 6 it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You remember this? And the seraphim were flying around saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in his holiness, what was his response? It wasn't to giggle. It wasn't to fall and, and roll around on the ground and, and bark like a dog and stuff like you see in, in, in some uh, charismatic churches. It was instead to recognize his sin. When he saw the Lord in his holiness, his first word was, Woe, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognized his sinfulness, and he pronounced woe upon himself, judgment upon himself. In the Gospels, Jesus, he pronounced woes on certain cities. Cities where he had been, and he had performed miracles, he had done teachings and, and healings, and had done all this stuff, and the people there would not repent. And Jesus pronounced woe on those, Chorazin and Bethsaida and and different places like that. Why? Because they had so much light. They had God himself in the flesh, in their midst, and they refused to repent. And Jesus pronounced a woe. He pronounced judgment on them. And Jesus here pronounces judgment too. In verse 1, he says, woe to him through whom they come. Yes, stumbling blocks are inevitable because we live in in a wicked and a fallen world, but it's still serious. So serious, in fact, verse 2, that it would be better for that person to wear a millstone necklace and go swimming. And, 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 and you all know what a millstone is. I'm sure you, even if you're having trouble recalling what it is, you've seen them. They're these large stones. They're, they're round in shape and they have flat surfaces. And, and usually they, were, they, they have a, a big hole in the middle of them. And they were used to grind corn or wheat or some other grain. And what they would do is they would, 
they, they would put their grain on the bottom millstone and, and the top millstone would be turned, in this case by a donkey. It was extremely heavy, and, and we, don't, we don't use donkeys to do that over here. We don't have millstones over here anymore, but they used to have them in grist mills, and they'd use water, the water wheels, to turn it. And so what, what Jesus is talking about, and those stones are extremely heavy, he says it would be better for that person to have that heavy millstone taken out into the sea and thrown overboard. Now, I just want you, I mean, we, we, we're familiar with that terminology, we're familiar with that imagery, but I just want you to envision in your mind what that would be like. A person goes out in, in, this, in, in this boat, out in, the middle of the, out in the middle of the sea. The only thing you can see for miles is water. And you get out there, and this huge, heavy stone is tied to this person's neck and thrown. The, the Bible uses the word, it is cast into the sea. It is, it, it is thrown. It's a very deliberate act. It is, it, it is it, it's with force. It's thrown overboard. And immediately that person, as soon as that, that rope comes tight, they're jerked off their feet and they're, they, they plunge headlong into the water. And as they sink, literally like a stone, they struggle. They work. They, they, they begin to panic. Their, their, their arms are flailing, their, their legs are flailing, they're, they're plummeting down, their, their, their ears begin to, to ache because of the pressure. Their lungs begin to burn as they try to hold their breath, even though it is, it, it is pointless. And they panic, and as that, as that stone goes deeper and deeper, finally, in an automatic response, they open their mouth to gasp for air, and their lungs fill with salt water. That's a horrifying picture to think about. And Jesus says it is better for that person than to be the person through whom these stumbling blocks come. Why? Because there is condemnation that awaits that person. There is judgment that awaits that person. God will bring, bring judgment either in this life or the next on the person that tempts somebody else to sin. And notice if you look at verse 2 at the end of it, it's not just any person. He says specifically these little ones that would cause these little ones to stumble. Now, Jesus is not talking specifically about children. He's using the same tender terminology that he uses elsewhere in Scripture to refer to his followers. He's talking about not just children, but children of God. And, 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 and therefore, we need to be on our guard. That's why he says verse 3. It, it is inevitable that these temptations will come. It's serious when they do come and through whom they come. And therefore, you need to be on your guard. Verse 3. And then the second thing I want you to see is not just stumbling blocks. Next, I want you to see sinning brothers. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, if you're a good Baptist, you're thinking, all right. Right? Not a good Baptist, but that's a, that's a classic Baptist response. All right. Just what I've been waiting for. The Lord's given me permission to be his hatchet man. I'm going to, he, he, somebody's offended me, and I'm going to tell him off with holy anger. Yeah, it's not very holy. But what, what Jesus is saying is don't come at him with both barrels blazing. He, he's not saying that this is some kind of a rubber stamp to... I mean, when, let's face it, when somebody offends us, they treat us wrong, they, they talk bad about us, uh, they, they're not there for us when we need it, whatever it is, it hurts. And so our response when we see this, that we should rebuke that person, we think, good, I'm going to tell them all the stuff that I've been thinking, all the stuff that I've been feeling... Because it will make us feel better to get that off our chest. That's not what he's talking about. 
The goal is not to unload on them so that they feel bad and you feel good. The goal is that you restore the relationship. That's the whole point of rebuking them. If, if they've done something wrong, you let them know what they've done. And hopefully there's restoration in that relationship. You've gained your brother back. Now, listen, stumbling blocks are going to happen. Christians are going to let you down. Christians are going to sin against you. And don't think that just because somebody names the name of Christ, that they are somehow set apart and, and, and they won't ever do wrong. That they won't ever offend you in some way. They won't ever let you down or hurt your feelings or whatever it is. Don't think that just because we all love each other in here, that none of us are going to offend somebody else in here. We don't set out to do that, but it's going to happen. Because we all fall and we all fail. And sometimes we want to get up on our high horse and say, well, so-and-so didn't visit me whenever such-and-such happened. So-and-so didn't didn't even wave at me whenever we were going down the road. So-and-so didn't shake my hand. You know how it is. We, we all come up with all these, all these different things, and we, we, we get our, our, our nose out of joint. We get up on our high horse, but what we don't remember is there's a pretty good chance you've done that to them too. And you may not know about it, or you may downplay it because we like to judge our actions by our motivations and somebody else's actions just by their actions. But, but remember... Yes, they may have sinned against you, but you've probably sinned against them. I do it. I don't do it intentionally, but I do it. And you do too. And Jesus says when somebody has wronged you, maybe they have tripped up on one of these stumbling blocks. Rebuke them. And again, the goal is not to be mean-spirited. The goal is restoration. So, Sometimes when somebody has wronged us, when we get our feelings hurt or whatever it is, have you ever noticed that sometimes you talk to that person and they say, you say, well, you know, it really bothered me. It really hurt my feelings when you did this or when you said this or, or when this didn't happen or whatever it is. And when you hear their side of the story, have you ever realized that maybe you didn't get the whole picture just with what you were seeing, what you were thinking? And sometimes when you, when you do this, you rebuke that person, and you go to them, again, not, not blasting them, but in a calm manner, say, this is, I feel that you wronged me, this is, this, is, this is how I feel that you wronged me. Sometimes you get a, a better picture of why that happened. Sometimes you'll get a, a better picture of, you know what, I didn't have all the facts. Or, you know, one time I was, and, and this is... You know, I wasn't offended by this, but one time I texted somebody, not in this church. It's actually my dad. I'll tell you who it was. I, I texted my dad. My dad's not a real talkative man. And, and I had texted him, or Scarlett had, one of the two, and, and there was no response. And we went to Illinois, where he lives, and we were visiting him. And Scarlett and I were kind of like, what the, why, why hadn't dad responded to us? And when he said something about it, he's like, I never got a text. And, you know, there's always, I'm a skeptical person. And in the back of my mind, it's like, yeah, I don't know about that, Dad. And while we were sitting there, days later after it had been sent, it came through. I was there when it came through. Now, listen, sometimes 
we think, oh, well, I know all the facts. Oh, yeah, you didn't, you didn't get a text, huh? Oh, you didn't get the message, the voicemail I left you. Oh, you didn't hear about such and such that happened, and so you didn't show up, uh-huh. There's a good chance that may not have happened. You, you, you may not know all the details. And so you go to this person, you share with them how they've, how they've sinned against you, and there's hopefully restoration. Uh, Benjamin Whitcote said this, He that repents, because Jesus said if that person hears it and he repents, forgive him. That's our job as a Christian, is to forgive that person. And Benjamin Whitcote said, He that repents is angry with himself. I need not be angry with him. And I thought that was a, a good insight. Jesus says, if he repents, let it go. Let go of the hurt. Let go of the bitterness. Sometimes we nurse a grudge along. Instead of letting that thing die off, we like to keep it going because it makes us feel good to have a, I don't know why it makes us feel good, but it does. And Jesus says, even if he keeps sinning and he keeps repenting, keep forgiving him. And there's a natural revulsion to that. But aren't you glad when you repent and keep sinning, God keeps forgiving you? And it may be that you have somebody in your life that you need to go to and you need to say, you know what? I have this against you. And clear the air. And then forgive that person if they repent. Stop holding the grudge. Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, don't expect that God's going to forgive you. Or it could be that you're on the other side of that coin and you have wronged somebody and you know it. You have you, you were short with them, you mouthed off to them, you were disrespectful, you, you said something hateful, you, you didn't do whatever it was you said you were going to do, and you've wronged them. Today, go to that person and repent. Tell them, I am sorry I did this, I should not have done it, please forgive me. You say, but pastor, what if they don't, what if they don't forgive me? That's on them. Your job is to do what he's called you to do, and that's to try to make things right. You've done what you can do. The rest of it's up to them. So we've seen stumbling blocks. We've seen sinning brothers. Next I want you to see small faith. Small faith. Verse 5. The apostles, the eminent men of God, they heard what Jesus said, and they had the same response that any of us would rightly have. That's too big of a, that's too big of a responsibility. That's too big of a request. Lord, increase our faith. We can't do it on our own. These men recognized right away that such an act of radical forgiveness required faith, more than they thought they had. And Jesus says, if you have even a tiny bit of faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, and we've talked about this in the past, something that's extremely small, that you'd say this mulberry tree, there's probably one standing right next to him, that you say this mulberry tree, be planted into into the sea, into the ocean. And it happened. Now, a mulberry tree over here is different from the ones they have over there because the, the mulberry tree they have over there bears figs. It doesn't bear little things that look like blackberries. And the, the thing that's significant about the mulberry tree in that part of the world is it has a huge root ball. It has extensive roots. They don't not only go out really far, but they also go really deep. And so, and, and if you've... If you've 
tried to clear some land or, or something like that, you know that if a tree has big roots, a big root system, the wind may snap that tree off, uh, the lightning from heaven may, may explode it, but you can't hardly push a tree over if it's got big root wad. You certainly can't just pick it up. And Jesus says, if you have faith, even a tiny little bit of faith, you'd say to this, this mulberry tree that has this huge root wad to be planted into the sea, and it would happen. You say, well, I can't, I've never, I've never been able to, have, have you ever, and you don't have to answer this out loud, but have you ever tried to do some of this? Like speak to a tree and see if it just move? Speak to a storm and see if it would be still? I've done it. It's not worked for me. But I've tried it. And so maybe you've done something like that or you know that if you tried it, you couldn't make a, a tree move because that's, now that's really big. And I think that's the point of what Jesus is saying. Even if you have a tiny little bit of faith, you can do the great big thing, how much more so can you do this little thing of forgiving somebody that wrongs you? You don't, you don't even have to have faith the size of a mustard seed. You just have to have the teeniest, minuscule amount of faith, and you as a Christian have it. You say, well, I can't do that. It's difficult because somebody's wronged me and it hurt my feelings, and it goes, forgiving them goes against everything I get in the world. The world says, hold on to that. It grates on me to forgive that person because I don't want it to seem like I'm saying it was okay. You're not. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is letting go of, of, of wanting or needing to get even. And, and it's, we, we think that because it goes against everything that's natural to us, that it's outside our reach. But listen, it's not a natural thing to do. It's supernatural. And as a Christian, you can do it and you must do it if you're going to be obedient to Christ. Now, the last thing that he says, if you look at verses 7 through 10, we see serving obediently. Serving obediently. And Jesus finishes up this, and it seems like kind of an odd connection here. Because he's talking about sinning and forgiving and faith and stumbling blocks. And all of a sudden he starts talking about a servant and unprofitable servants and, and so forth. And... It seems odd, but, but here's the connection, I believe. If a person had a servant back then, usually they didn't have like a field servant and a house servant. Like you had a couple of servants that just did it all. So you'd have somebody working in the field, then they'd come in and they'd take care of stuff at the house too. They, they'd cook and, and prepare the food and what have you. And, and if a person had a servant and he was out in the field, the master comes home, the servant comes in, the master doesn't say, hey, why don't you take a, take a break? I'll take, care of, I'll take care of things. You just sit, kick up your feet, I'll feed you, I'll, I'll prepare the food. No, the person who was in that role did, he, he took care of the things of the field, and then he took care of the master, the needs of the master. And he didn't get showered with praise because of it. He didn't get a parade. He didn't get servant of the year award because he came in and, and cooked after he'd been out in the field working. Why? Because that was what was expected. That was his role. That was his job. And likewise, when we're obedient to the Lord, and we do things like, oh, I don't know, things like forgive somebody else when they've 
spoken tersely to us. We shouldn't expect a Christian of the Year plaque to be sent to us in the mail. Don't expect a parade through town. Don't expect to be canonized as a saint because somebody uh, hurt your feelings and you forgave them. Because if you look, look at uh, look at verse ten again. He says, "So you too, when you do all things which which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. You're just doing what you're told." Now, the word translated as unworthy, or your Bible may translate as unprofitable, does not mean ineffectual. It has the idea of not benefiting the Lord. They're saying that this, Jesus is saying that the attitude we should have when we've done things like forgive others and, and things like that, that we shouldn't think that we are doing God some wild favor because we've done what we're told. It's not like God is, is profiting from that. We're not giving something to God that He is lacking. We're, we're not adding to Him. Doing things like forgiving a brother who has sinned against us is not going above and beyond in the Christian life. Because that is part and parcel of the Christian life. We're just doing what we've been commanded. We're only doing what we should have done. Now, if all this doesn't speak to where each of us is, I don't know what does. Because there are stumbling blocks in this world. We all face temptations to sin every day. You have people that have sinned against you. And you have sinned against people. If somebody sinned against you, go to them, tell them their fault. Again, not with the goal of letting them have it so you can feel better but rather to restore the relationship and then forgive them when they repent. Or, or maybe, maybe you've sinned against somebody. As I said before, today's the day to get that right. Call that person up. Go visit them. And don't send them a text that just says, sorry. Sorry for what? Talk to that person. Apologize. Ask for forgiveness. Don't make excuses. Don't downplay it. Own what you did. You say, again, pastor wife, they don't forgive me. The Bible says pursue peace with all men. Have you done that by pursuing that? Yes. The Bible says as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Some things don't depend on you. You can only do so much. If they don't forgive you, that's between them and God. But your conscience can be clear. And then the goal is to go and sin no more. Don't, don't already be planning how you're going to Wrong them again. Or maybe you're, you're, you're in the boat of, of tempting others to sin. Maybe it's through clothing that you wear. Maybe it's through influence that you wield. We all have a circle of influence. And Jesus says we need to be careful that we don't draw somebody into sin. We shouldn't be casting stumbling blocks down in front of people. It would be better for you to be drowned in the sea than for that to happen. Because there, there stands condemnation for that person that tempts others to sin. Why don't you stand with me as uh, musicians come. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And with nobody looking around, I just want to encourage you to search your heart.
Are you holding a grudge against somebody? Are you nursing that thing along instead of just letting it die? Sometimes we perform CPR on our old grudges. It's like an old friend after a while. We're so used to it being around. So let that thing go. You're sitting at home feeling bitter, feeling angry at somebody, thinking it's going to do something to them, and they're out watching a movie and, and having dinner. Being bitter and holding a grudge only hurts you. Maybe you have some sin that you need to confess to somebody. You've wronged them. Today's the day to do that. Ultimately, though, the one that we need to be concerned about offending and sinning against is God himself. The Bible says that every one of us has sinned. That means me and that means you. You've sinned against the holy God. You've broken his commands. You've done the things he said not to do and you've left undone the things he said to do. And that sin separates you from God. But the Bible says that if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And even right where you are, if you would now trust Christ for salvation, He will save you. Our Heavenly Father, we know that as fallen sinful people, each of us is liable to, uh, to fall into any number of, of sins, vices, temptations. And thank you that the temptation itself is not a sin. But God, we know that when we give in to that temptation, that's when the sin starts. And God, we pray that you'd forgive us of our sins that we've done this week and even today. God, if there's somebody here who's holding on to something they need to let go of, God, I pray that you would let them do that. Even if the person who has wronged them, has sinned against them, even if that person is, has, has been dead for many years, let them let that go and experience the freedom that is found in you. Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us be in a right relationship with one another, but ultimately with you. In Jesus' name, amen.